This is the Shift Podcast. On the Shift Daily Podcast, we have Martin Rasser join us talking about deep fakes and he's an ex-CIA agent. So look forward to hearing more from that guy and our conversation around the impact of people fooling us with bad info. Also, Lily Woodbury, takeaway from plastic containers, how they've changed that in her community, and she's saying that it can impact everyone across Canada. We did Are You Okay on the show, so it's on the podcast too. Are You Okay with Pet Geese? And how about Are You Okay with Exploding Vagina Candles? It's a thing. The Shift Daily Podcast. Deep fakes. We've talked about them before. I mean, they can be really fun. To me, they're, I mean, aside from the fun little meme ones, it is absolutely terrifying to me how some of these topics are so incredibly effective in regards to, uh, well, I guess misinformation, if you will, propaganda, if you will. I, I guess we should welcome Martin here to the program first because he's just outside Washington, D.C. In, um, in Alexandria, which is beautiful, by the way. Martin Rasser has some conversation that he can share in and around deepfakes. I'm terrified by this, Martin. Um, I just want to start right there because it's really cool, but it's also like, whoa, uh, in the wrong hands, this is way less cool. So how are you today? Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Shane. Uh, yeah, great to be with you. And yeah, you're exactly right. Deep fakes, uh, they're fascinating, awesome, and terrifying all at once. Um, politics on everybody's mind this week in general, it's safe to say. And if you look sort of across the water there in your home, you're going to see a whole lot of stuff that's happening uh, in Washington, D.C. If, if you, if you, you take a little bit of a look to the north and to the east a little bit across the Potomac. So w- I guess the political start might be a great access point here to talk about how deep fakes sort of came to the forefront of potentially dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've we've uh, seen the consequences of what constant lies and disinformation can do, right? It, it can get people whipped up into a frenzy. Uh, we saw the insurrection at the Capitol, and now we have 25,000 National Guard troops uh, securing the Capitol and, and the uh, upcoming inauguration. And, and that's what I meant by terrifying, mm-hmm. because, you know, deep fakes were an even a big piece of this disinformation campaign, this was just lies being repeated over and over again, and people start believing it. Just imagine when we get to a point where you have a concerted effort to insert fake audio and video mm-hmm. in in this in this mix, how combustible that's going to be. Combustible. And, and that's something that, that we should be very much aware of and worried about and really start thinking deeply about how... How do we address this going forward in society? Well, and let's use a specific example, Martin. Uh, you combustible. Wow, what a word! So, in the speeches from last week or whatever it was, it's a bit of a blur. You know, the 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 people said what they said on the stages. Now, regardless of political stripe, they said what they said, and people reacted. And so I'm not going to draw a good or bad or right or wrong on that, but those are just things that they said. Imagine if that same situation was perpetuated, not even by things that they said. What if one of these hooligans that was involved in the Capitol was able to take and take what Trump standing on his stage there and make him say things that he didn't even say to exaggerate it that much worse so there is a good scope of reality and what could come of it all in one spot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we're, we're only at the tip of the iceberg of what's what's possible, right? And you can bet that uh, the Russians and the Chinese were taking very careful notes watching this unfold. And yeah, the situation we've had so far, you know, it's kind of a haphazard uh, campaign, right? This propaganda campaign, this disinformation campaign. And imagine if brighter minds had a more detailed strategy behind all this, how how effective it could have been compared to what we just saw. Um, that's why we, uh, 
you know, both in the United States, Canada, and in fellow democracies, we have to think uh, and look very closely at what we can do to make people understand what's possible with deep fake technology. Think about when you start adding virtual and augmented reality into the mix. You know, we're already focused on our own little realities by watching certain news channels, listening to certain radio stations. Mm-hmm. Very easy to block out things that you don't want to hear. And and you start creating this alternate reality for yourself. And some people are very susceptible to that. And once you don't even know for sure if you can believe the videos that you're seeing or believing the, the speeches and... Um, the conversations that you're hearing, mm-hmm. you know, where, where do we go from there? Well, there was a lady who walked into a store, a box store here in uh, Calgary, where I broadcast from, and she got into an argument about masks. And it, regardless, again, of this point or that point, the reality was, as she said to on the video to the store clerk, you need to get on the internet and educate yourself. And that was a terrifying moment to go, whoa. So I don't even know if it's an alternative universe, as you describe, as much as it is their universe and we're the alternate, right? Like it's, it's created that much separation or reversal of logic that we're almost the alternative at this point because they're so convinced. To your article on scientificamerican.com, Martin, uh, this one sentence gets me. It says, new research hits at how foundational the problem is and the separation in the psychology of when people see images that are doubtful versus videos that are doubtful, and we react completely differently, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, video is is much more visceral, right? It, it's really because we're we're hardwired to believe what we see, and and in most cases, we want to see what we believe, and it, it's that combination of of just how our minds work, and this is you know over over many uh, many decades and centuries that that these habits have formed and it's really difficult to step away from that and and understand that that's how we think because our you know in schools we're not taught that like how we're we have all these ingrained biases like people don't think like that people don't talk about those things for a lot of people it's uncomfortable because they think well that that makes me sound like I'm uh, off my rocker. Yeah. Well, no, that's not the case at all. You know, deep down, we're you know, as, as human beings, yeah, our psychologies are are flawed, and if if we ignore that, um, yeah, that just makes the situation worse. Can you tell us, since you're on psychology, about the psychology of intelligence analysis piece that you learned in your article? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a former intelligence officer. I was an analyst with uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, for uh, for a number of years. And there's this great book by a former CIA officer called uh, Richards Hoyer, and he he wrote this book called The Psychology of Intelligence Analysis. And that's one of the most important readings that you have as you're going through the training process, because as an intelligence analyst, you have to be cognizant of these biases that you have, right? You have to have awareness of these um, mental shortcuts that you take, or when you evaluate a piece of information, how important, how, how accurate is that information? Your mind can play tricks on you and you may think something is, is better information than it really is because you're looking for a specific answer. The classic Case study for that was uh, in the run-up to the Iraq War. Does Saddam Hussein have nuclear weapons? And so in particular, in the aftermath of that intelligence failure, the, the U.S. intelligence community has put a lot of time and effort into going back to square one and, and helping uh, new analysts, but also established analysts, really think through what those problems are and, and, you know, how you can try and address those, try to mitigate those. Um, so yeah, if, if uh, your listeners have the chance, I would highly recommend this book. It's uh, you know, it's available online. It's, it's not expensive. You can get it for somewhere between 15 and $20 us um, through uh, you know, a whole number of online bookstores. And it really just, you know, makes you think about 
well, what do I do in my day to day when I'm walking down the street and I see a person that looks a certain way doing something? You know, am I just assuming that they're doing something bad because they look a certain way? You, you'll be surprised uh, once you start thinking about that and just going about your day to day, how many of these uh, hidden assumptions that, that you have and, and how that colors how you how you see the world, how you see the the people around you. It's it's fascinating stuff. It is fascinating stuff, and I'm really glad that you brought up bias because it's it's on my hit list here in the next few weeks of things to talk about on the show. So um, this is a great introduction to all of it. The book again is a Psychology of Intelligence Analysis, um, and Richard, I, I would say it probably Hour. How did you pronounce his name? Uh, Hoyer. Hoyer. Um, well, I guess I I got to ask you. Working for the CA must have been pretty cool at times. Uh, it, yeah, it was, it was very cool. Have you like, <laughs> it was a great job. Did you it was plant a great like job. a bug in my computer now? Are you watching me? <laughs> no, no, that, that's a different agency. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. So you take from that, um, you know, a career of critical thinking, then you look at technology and we have a situation where the technology is being manipulated in order to make it more convincing technology you would think would be one of the first solutions to identify that but then you have technology against technology so really it's whoever has the most creation time and money to be able to battle that one out if we as humans become more critical thinkers that seems to me to be the most cognitive way to at least question and doubt these things i was given this point by my counselor one day she said if it feels really easy it's probably not right for you. Meaning that you, you're probably repeating an old pattern, right? Whether that's relationships or dealing with the kids or whatever, if that's the easy way to deal with it, it's probably not going to get you to where you want to be because that's backwards, not forwards. So is, is that how you see this, that the technology is not quite there or it is going to be up to us to ask the question why? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, we have a tendency to use uh, technology as a crutch, right? Because it's easy. And to your point, if, if it's easy, it's comfortable. And oh, we work. don't like stepping out of our comfort zones. Now, there is a place for technology um, to help address, like, the deep fake issue, for example. Uh, there's there's a few startups that are working on some really interesting techniques to be able to, to spot a, a digital fake, whether it's a video or an audio clip. And so you can start seeing the potential to put a digital watermark on a video. So you can say, yes, this is authentic. But ultimately, you're never going to be able to keep up with the bad guys, right? Because they'll, they'll just bring it to the next level or just inundate you with so much that you just can't keep up. And a lot of it is just, yeah, it's it's on you and me to determine, is is this right? Does this make sense? And you, you uh, hit the nail on the head. We have to think more critically about these things. And we just have to have a better understanding of some of our own cognitive shortfalls. And I think there's a place for our, our schools and universities to, to pay attention to that because you know we're going to be inundated with more and more fake information fake news and if if we can't take a step back and think critically about what we're seeing and hearing you know it it's it's going to be very very tough uh, for for society going forward if we rewind 80 years 90 years 80 years is this a whole lot different than i mean the technology of the day 80 years ago and leaflets falling from an airplane onto a city propaganda style. Is this really any different than that? Just the fact that we have an electronic version of it. That's way more convincing today because on the relative scope of human experience, I mean, if it was in the paper, it was real. And if it fell from the sky on a piece of paper, it was real. So um, is it really any different? Or is that too simplistic? No, I mean, fundamentally, it, yeah, it's it's the same, right? I mean, if you look at Nazi propaganda in the 30s and 40s, it was highly effective. Um, but just imagine the damage they could have done if you can produce this fake information at essentially no cost and be able to distribute it 
around the world in an instant. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you have today with, um, with algorithms and bits and bytes and social media. There, there's no limits and, and anyone can do it now. You can download an app on your phone as we're talking and create a pretty effective, realistic looking deep fake video by the time we're done with this conversation. It's that easy now. And so you can have anyone from a 60-year-old in Belarus to a 10-year-old kid in Los Angeles making these things and distributing it. And if they go viral, hey, like you can't stop it, right? You can go um, be in the Pirates of the Caribbean if you want. Um, you can be Captain Jack Sparrow on an Absolutely. app in a matter of minutes. See, this is supposed to help me. This doesn't help me, Martin. I was supposed to feel better after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the the one upside is I think, um, you know, with a lot of countries now looking at what has happened in the United States, there's going to be a lot of, of soul searching as to, you know, what have we done to ourselves? Um, and, you know, similar things happened when televisions first came out, when radios first came out, the printing press you know, you have this initial wave of excitement, then people freak out because there's this spread of information that's just false or dangerous, or threatening to whoever's in charge. Mm-hmm. And then you react to it, and then you f- figure out that happy medium. Like right now, we're in the freak out phase of, of fake media. I'm definitely but in we'll, the freak out we'll, phase. <laughs> right. But but we'll, we'll find that balance. Okay. We'll find that balance. It's going to be a, a you know of rocky few years while we figure that out, like what kind of regulations should we put on big tech companies? Um, you know, what does free speech mean in, in this kind of era? Is it proper to uh, block the account of the president of the United States on Twitter yeah. and a whole bunch of his followers? Um, so we're going to have some, uh, some interesting discussions about that here in the United States. I'm sure the same thing will happen in Canada and with our friends and partners in, in Europe and Asia. Um, well, yeah. But at least we're having that debate, right? They're not discussing this so much in uh, in Russia or Beijing right now. Yeah. So the one, the one uh, thing that really encourages me is the fact that we can have these discussions. We will have these discussions and, eventually we will find uh you know a reasonably good answer to these very difficult questions yeah i mean what is free speech in the world where um it is just as easy to spread lies that's a good question and um you know <laughs> you have to have your blue check wristband before you get up in public to prove who you are even in today's world of deep fakes that aren't even real people anymore like these are like we we joke about becoming johnny depp but now deepfakes have stretched into the technology of just manufacturing people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's uh, there was this whole thing on uh, LinkedIn profiles with pictures of people that just did not exist. It looked highly realistic. And unless you really study closely, you know, you could, you could be connecting with people um, that are completely, completely digital, completely fake. And, you know, if you think of all the the bad things that can come of that if people really want to do harm. Yeah, absolutely. They can do that. Uh, the scientific American is the, uh, the blog that this particular article is on at scientificamerican.com. Uh, Martin, I don't know how many beers it takes to get a good CIA story idea, but I'm willing to try. Um, I did want to give you a tip though. Um, just out of the love affair that I have for elephants is that down the road on the other side of the, uh, the river, there is the Washington DC zoo and the elephants the elephant family from Calgary here lives at that zoo. So I invite you to go to your amazing zoo and uh, say hi to Spike for me because I'd love that. I will definitely say hi to Spike. I haven't been to the zoo in a little while, but yeah, that place is is fantastic. So now that I know that Spike is from Calgary, I will uh, I will make it over there as soon as I can. Uh, Martin Rasser, thank you very much. I hope we can bring you on again, man. This is insightful stuff. Um, there's some good stories, I think, underneath there. I don't know which ones you're allowed to tell or not, but there's some good stories there, so I'd love to hear more. Well, I'd love to come back, and I'd uh, love to share a few stories from my CIA days. This is The Shift Podcast. 
We've had a guest before who is on the left of the coasts, not the right coast on the Maritimes. We are talking about quite literally as far left in Canada as you can go. It's somewhat ironic, but I truly mean the left coast and the west coast. Uh, from Tofino and Euclid is Lily Woodbury. Lily, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back on the show. And as some would argue, also the best coast. Well, we've this has been an ongoing I'm thing on the show. <laughs> it has been. The West is best battle has been, has started. Like, it really has. And uh, some of the, the listeners in Toronto are getting, you know, offended and they're coming back with their, their uh, chirps, if you will. And it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. People are taking their stand about uh, their favorite places in Canada. You happen to live in one of the most beautiful of them all. I do. I do. And I also think there's always room for healthy competition. Yeah. Well, that's true. Hey, actually do. <laughs> that's true. Let's let's dig right into that. The um, You are born and raised. Like, I mean, this is your home. This is not you weren't born somewhere and then you decided to go to the sea. I mean, this is your jam. This is your life. This is your home. Yeah, in a way, yes. I was born in Tofino and I have a passport to prove it. Not a lot of people believe me, but there is photo evidence. But I actually moved away from Tofino when I was four years old to an island called Manitoulin. Manitoulin Island is in northern Ontario. And it's beautiful, by the way. It is beautiful as well. It's the world's largest freshwater island. And it's kind of funny, um, you know, just like salmon that, that, you know, upon being born, go to fresh water and make this big journey. They were returned to the place they're born. So my whole life, I had a plan to come back to Tofino at 18 years old. And that's what I did. And that's when I jumped into environmentalism. So in the conversation of the day today, I will tell um, the audience uh, the same things that I tell you, Lily, is one of the the neatest things about knowing you is not only your commitment to uh, your, I'm going to say craft because it is a craft. It's like an art. It's being able to communicate clearly your cause and not only your commitment to that, but the preparation and education you've surrounded it by is really remarkable. And I want the audience to know that as we get into this conversation. So not only do you sit and do interviews with guys like me, but I mean, you do go out and you pick up the garbage off the beaches. It is a thing that you do. Yeah, no, that's right. And it's uh, it's a whole ecosystem approach, which we call beach to boardroom of being on the beaches, the coastlines, collecting the pollution, doing the data, gathering the insights and reporting it on shows like this, sharing it and disseminating information with the public, doing delegations to government. So I'm very proud of that approach. And it gives you a really holistic perspective that maybe otherwise you wouldn't have had you not been out in the field. Well, and we tend to lose that. There are many agendas on both sides of this conversation. And I think we acknowledge all of that. There are green agendas that are misguided and lost. There are um, non-green agendas that are also misguided and lost. And the clarity in this is what's happening. These are the numbers. Yes. Where you, what are you going to do with it is incredibly helpful, I think, to not only to me to understand it, but I think to everybody who's out there. So let's get started into one of the coolest things that your group has created. I find it not only exciting for Tofino and Euclid, but f- for all communities and anybody um, that is working in this. And I literally mean when you make decisions about uh, even your, your, maybe your hockey team or your your curling club or your community center, when you want to make decisions, these are impacts you can have. Tell us what you've been up to with Surfrider Pacific Rim in regards to the Forget the Foam campaign. Yeah, thank you. And for folks who are unfamiliar with Surfrider Foundation, our mission is the protection and enjoyment of the ocean, beaches, and waves for all people. So we are broadly focused on coastal and ocean protection protection and preservation. But in Tofino and Euclid, we really focus our efforts on eradicating plastic pollution and shifting to a circular economy. So since 2016 in both towns, we've been working to eradicate single-use plastics that we have found in public spaces, littering beaches that are filling up landfills. And we had we had a proliferation of these items because of the, the rise in tourism, the rise in takeaway containers, so much that Dufino and Euclid have some of the highest waste numbers per capita in the province. And so starting in 2016, we worked to eradicate straws. So Tofino was the first town in uh, Canada to eliminate single-use plastic straws. Then we went on to bags. And then last autumn, we launched our Cut the Cutlery campaign, working to eliminate plastic and bioplastic cutlery, which cannot be composted or recycled on the coast, as well as polystyrene takeaway containers. So 
upon building community compliance, which is what we always try to do first, we try to work to change the culture on the ground, get community buy-in, get folks stoked about it, make businesses leaders in the movement, support them in being leaders, and then go to our districts to say, hey, we've built this movement, we've built this culture, let's get a regulation in place. And so that's been our approach and it's really worked. And both districts have now added polystyrene takeaway containers to their single-use plastic item regulations. And we also were hoping they would ban cutlery, but they cannot do that until the province of BC uh, amends their community charter, which will allow local governments to ban new single-use plastics. Okay, so let's dig into a couple of things to make sure that we understand all of the pieces of the puzzle. Polystyrene typically gets called styrofoam. Yes, that's the trademark name. Okay. <laughs> Let me yeah. try to call polystyrene. Yeah, yeah and most it, folks, styrofoam is the is the common common name. Yeah, and so we just need to understand that that that's kind of what we're talking about: styrofoam clamshell takeaway food containers. So what what does takeaway look like without styrofoam? It ideally looks like moving towards systems for refill and reuse, where we're not using any single use items. You know, no matter what the single use item is, whether it's a paper straw, paper bag, sugar cane, this, wood and that, it all has an impact. It has emissions involved in the transportation of these goods, water and energy used for producing these goods, crops used for these goods that could be used for other more necessary things like food security. And so, yeah, instead, we really need to shift towards systems for refill or reuse where people are using their reusable containers for takeaway foods, uh, as well as takeaway goods in the food service industry, as well as uh, food retail. So that's what we really need to shift towards. And we recognize that that's been pretty complicated by the pandemic and a lot of the misinformation circulating around how the, the virus is spread. And we do know that it is a respiratory-based pathogen, that we do not um, pass it through single-use items. There's actually zero cases of fomite transmission. So while it's difficult, we first want businesses to use and allow reusable containers and refill. But if that's not available or not possible right now with local health regulations, then the next best thing is to have locally compostable items like bamboo, sugarcane, that even though they're single use, they can still remain in a localized circular economy. Okay, so some things are more difficult than others. And what I hear is that ideally, we're not using anything wasteful. Um, But in the meantime, getting there matters. So things like a pizza become incredibly difficult, because it's not like everybody has a gigantic plate lying around uh, for (laughs) pizza. Is is that... Does that have a, um, does that have a, um, does that have an approach where you just kind of go continue being better at this? Yeah, 100%. Things aren't black and white. Things don't change overnight. You know, you need an approach that's, you know, going to be context specific and really cover the broad range of items that we get in takeaway and food service and food retail, including pizza boxes a lot of people actually trying to recycle pizza boxes and you cannot recycle them if there's grease in them. So fun fact for a lot of folks. Yeah. But yeah, you're totally right. We need an approach that's going to continue to allow us to progress and eliminate waste. And that might look like interim solutions, like moving towards compostables. So in, in that, the contaminated um, part of cardboard, for example, the, you know, that little layer of wax paper becomes so incredibly important if we want to recycle the cardboard, but at the same time, the wax paper, not really necessary. So we do get into this conversation of lesser of the evils. And I I want to really just acknowledge that from the place of understanding that it isn't, like you said, it isn't clear, it isn't the same for everything. And it takes work to do that. One of the first things that's going to happen is I'm going to get a text message that says, oh yeah, well, how are you going to do this then? well, then that clearly needs to be dealt with. So there are sugar, there are bamboo forks, there are sugarcane plastics, if you will, uh, that are starting to come out. You said bioplastic. Is that what bioplastic is? Yeah, bioplastic is kind of a, it's a large umbrella term that's actually pretty vague for a lot of people because it can typically include a lot of different quote unquote degradable plastics that can be biodegradable, oxodegradable, But really what it means is that it contains natural polymers. So polymers that are made from 
plants essentially from from flora whereas typical fossil fuel based polymers come from exactly that petroleum they come from fossil fuels and do not break down however what the issue is with bioplastics commonly is that they contain genetically modified organisms so we're seeing corn and soy pop up as really common ingredients in bioplastic bioplastic products and you know with the genetically modified crops there's a lot more pesticide use there's a lot more chemicals used industrial practices that degrade the land that actually leads to more pollution and runoff in uh, freshwater systems in the ocean pollutes the soil has a greenhouse gas impact etc so when you really look at the life cycle it is not a solution i do think that there is some promising innovation in the field of bioplastics as it relates to products that are truly regenerative, like building, you know, cutlery or straws out of seaweed or out of mushrooms, so that when they are composted, they are actually going to enhance soil. You know, they are actually going to support local economies. They're not going to take away from food security. So it's it's a bit nuanced in that sense. But overall, the mainstream bioplastic industry is not a solution to our plastic pollution crisis. You have uh, very eloquently described what I said about there are always agendas at play, right? Um, We get these bags um, at the grocery store that they say they're biodegradable. Um, And technically they're biodegradable, but that doesn't mean that they're okay to be tossing into the garbage all day, every day because of the stuff that's in them. That's what I'm hearing here. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's completely accurate. And I think it's it's an approach, not even I think, I know it is an approach that all of us need to bring to our environmentalism and whatever shape, way, form that looks like. And, you know, the reason for that is, is we often just take things at face value. And what we need to do is, is deepen our perspective on these things. You know, we look at a product and we're like, okay, it's vegan, you know, great. You know, that's great for the environment. We need to take into account, does it contain palm oil? Lots of vegan things do. Is it even really vegan if it contains palm oil and it's linked to tropical deforestation that's destroying habitat for you know many of the world's incredible species? Is it wrapped in plastic? Has it come from an exotic country and traveled half halfway around the world? So there's all of these components that we need to be thinking about and looking beyond just the surface of branding and surface of you know what's deemed good. And that's why I think a life cycle analysis approach is really important to look at, okay, where is the good product being um, extracted, manufactured? Where is it coming from? Looking at all these components. And when we really take everything into account, a few trends emerge. And that's the fact that we really need to move away from mass consumption. We need to move away from this culture of endless buying and unlimited growth that is connected to consumption. We need to work towards becoming more of a service-based economy. And that's why we love the circular economy at Surfrider and many other ENGOs, including Greenpeace and David Suzuki, are calling for this because it is based on on service. Uh, We also need to work towards being more localized, uh, growing growing more local foods, supporting more local businesses, keeping our waste local and turning it into a resource as, again, that's lowering the, the loops in terms of greenhouse gases, water, energy, Etc. So in that conversation, though, um, what I hear is, to your point in the beginning, when you said eradicate, eradicate plastic pollution, is it safe to listen from the place of that doesn't mean eradicating plastic? Um, there are many applications of plastic in life where right now it is just the best tool. doesn't mean it's going to be the best tool forever. I mean, innovation hopefully would continue to push those things forward. But for what we know today, that in some certain scenarios, there is a, there's a need there. And, but if we can eradicate plastic pollution and create that loop the way you describe it, that to me seems like the understanding about, say, an airplane or a car in that right now, if you, you know, feel the need to go somewhere and see those beautiful rainforests, you have to fly in an airplane. Um, yeah. That uses fuel to do it. Is it the ideal way to do it? No, but hopefully the planes get more efficient and eventually that stuff gets you placed one day. That could take a long time. Um, so what I hear in that is the word responsibility and accountability. Yeah, massively. You nailed it. And in working towards a circular economy for plastics, as you say, eradicating plastic pollution doesn't mean eradicating plastics. It is a material that has allowed us to progress in many ways, medically, scientifically, in industry, 
but we need do need to move towards uh, a smart management of the material. And we do need to move towards producing drastically less amounts of the material, which we can do because there are so many purposes and functions that we do not need it for. And what we do need it for is again, medical science, you know, a lot of, a lot of applications in construction and different industries. And so in thinking about that, we really need to move towards shifting the responsibility, as you mentioned from consumers, which is what the narrative has really pushed for many years And, you know, really to the benefit of multinational corporations who have said like, yeah, you know, let's empower individuals to grow their own carrots and recycle and make these changes. And that's really, you know, allowed corporations to brush off any responsibility or stewardship. And so one of the policies we're advocating for at Surfrider, and again, many ENGOs are advocating for across the country, is the expansion of extended producer responsibility So that multinational corporations are responsible for the full life cycle of plastic products and packaging, both financially and operationally, so that it's put back on them. And when that happens, they're going to make products that actually can be recycled and not just appreciate in value, that can be refilled and reused, that are designed more efficiently and more intelligently. Here we are in the middle of COVID. Um, and medical has been a big thing. I mean, consumption of single-use things, I would guess, has gone way up in some aspects. You know, takeaway food delivery, even though people are cooking at home more, but obviously the medical aspect has gone has that gone up. What have you seen the impact of disposable masks? Yeah, it is. <laughs> the masks are massive. We see we've seen an incredible rise in all types of PPE gear on beaches, in public areas. You know, it's it's just everywhere. And I think this this points to the issue in that we are very reactive in nature. We are very quick to hand out single use items, and of course, these single use items have been necessary during this pandemic. But if we're going to massively distribute a single use item, there needs to be proper plans in place for managing the end of life of that material. You know, what we've seen on the coast is that, and and everywhere is that people's sense of well-being has been compromised by the pandemic. We also know through psychological studies that people's sense of well-being is, is threatened when they see litter, they see pollution, especially when they see medical waste in public areas and on beaches. And so what we've had, when we've seen on the coast, is a bit of a perfect storm in terms of there being a proliferation in waste due to the pandemic from takeaway items, but also the PPE gear, and then people becoming very reactive because they're now seeing this in public spaces. And a big part of that, of these things being in public spaces is that there wasn't end of life solutions organized for that PPE gear. And again, for a lot of these other takeaway items and items that shouldn't even exist, as I've already mentioned, that that have ecological alternatives or reusable alternatives. So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing. And overall, we really need to shift towards a culture that's steeped in stewardship that, that has policies that reflect that when we have a Canadian government and provincial government that really truly honor the environment and, and stewardship of the environment will have policies and governance that reflect that. And that'll culturally change things on the ground. People will have greater access for waste management. You know, in that case, in that scenario, ideally PPE gear would have, would have, you know, greater access for, for recycling and what have you not. Okay. If we're just two people sitting down, it seems to me that if we were to be a little bit more responsible with where things go, right? The easiest thing in life to do is get into business or a relationship. I mean, we've all been through this, right? You meet somebody new when you're younger and you're like, this person is amazing. Getting out of the relationship is often the hard part. Yes. Getting into, um, getting into business is easy. Getting out of business is hard. (laughs) And, um, if we were to instead, just as human beings, look at how we going to complete this, meaning be more responsible on the back end in general. Yeah. It seems to me that when a pandemic comes up and all of a sudden we need hundreds of millions of disposable masks out of the blue to help mitigate it um, because it's the fastest, simplest way to help control. It doesn't seem so impactful. It's not such a big deal when 
for all the years leading up to it, you've tried to be more responsible. Something happened. It's ugly. Okay, we can clean it up. Now we know in time where those things are going to go. We continue being responsible. The impact to me, I think of it at all like money in that when you're responsible with your money all the way along and you still have so the, the credit card sitting there, but the balance is zero, something goes wrong. You still have access to do the best you can for a little while, hang on tight, then clean it up when you're done. Is that too simplistic of an approach here to look at all of these things in our responsibility just as Canadians? No, I actually, I really think that's a, an important approach. And I think it, it highlights a truth that we really need to hold close to our hearts right now, especially in a time where I think, you know, negativity is very rampant and that it's, we really need to have a more hopeful view of humanity, a hopeful view of each other and have faith in the fact that, you know, when we don't do things perfectly, we are going to learn from that and we are going to progress and innovate along a trajectory so that it doesn't happen again. And as citizens in, in this democratic system, that we are going to take those lessons learned and share that with, with politicians, with our governments that are here to serve us, that are here to serve us as we are on the ground witnessing this happen. And so I think this has happened in, in so many ways but it's not necessarily covered in the media. You know, what's covered is very negative stories of, of all of the pollution of the externalities, but what isn't covered is the stories of progress and of innovation and how these different case studies of a circular economy are, are actually helping us build back better. And, you know, a really beautiful case study that I've recently learned about uh, regarding PPE gear and a circular economy comes from Southern India, where, I forget the exact province in Southern India, but they're a mass manufacturer of PPE gear, one of the largest in the world. And so the amount of offcuts from that waste is, is enormous. And meanwhile, there's people who are homeless, COVID patients who also have specific needs. And one of those needs are mattresses. And so this one fashion designer, what she, she saw a gap and she also saw the room for innovation. So she started taking all of these PPE gear offcuts from I think it was specifically masks and using that um, weaving them to create mattresses while also creating jobs for rural women. So she's taking a, a waste source and turning it into a need for vulnerable populations while creating jobs for rural women. You know, why aren't these stories being shared more widely so we can learn from each other and really see even amidst the darkness that there, there is light, that there is, that there is progress. When you look along the history of humanity, you think about even where women were 50 years ago, indigenous nations in Canada 50 years ago, you know, we didn't have the vote. Well, women did, but First Nations and other indigenous Métis and Inuit didn't have the vote until the 1960s. And so I really think that while we are feeling a lot of pressure and maybe a lot of doom and gloom to realize that we have actually progressed an incredible amount environmentally and socially, and we're going to continue to do that. And by having that hopeful perspective, it is proven again in psychology that we are more likely to be involved. If we believe there is hope, we guarantee that there is hope. If we believe there is no hope, well, guess what? We're probably not going to do much to contribute. Uh, Lily, it's always enlightening. And um, it's so interesting, the conversation. I have so many notes here of other things that we can even dig into in all of this. We could talk all day, and I'd love to. We really could. <laughs> um, so I would like to commit to that, in fact, and finding ways to get the conversation going. Because, for example, you did say right there, you said um, the, the, the phrase Build Back Better. And one of the things that, not for today, but I would like to ask you about the politics of Build Back Better, right? Yeah. As a person who is living into that. But at the same time, there are organizations and political parties that are taking that phrase and they're butchering it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and they're making it not work because it's becoming, um, again, I'm going to use the word agenda. I think it's a nice, easy catch-all. So, you know, there are pieces of all of this that people have questions about, and I would love to dig into it so we all can get clarity from all sides on, on how that looks. So if you dig that, I'm in. I would love to. I would love to. And as mentioned, a circular economy is truly essential for building back better and in a way that's not the way the term has been appropriated, perhaps by corporations and government, that's just a cosmetic level, but really in a deep regenerative sense, that's going to solve issues in a strategic and intersectional way. So for Surfrider, um, how can everyone find you if they are curious to learn more? 
Yeah, so you can learn more by visiting pacificrim.surfrider.org. We are a volunteer-based organization, and we are always looking for more folks to get involved, whether you live in the communities we work with, but also remote. We work with folks all across Canada. And you can email me at alwoodbury at canada.surfrider.org. Lily, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's the Shift Podcast. We started the program talking about the best James Bond gadget. If you could have one, just one, which one would you choose? Ryan started the conversation uh, with jetpack shoes. That's what Ryan thought would be awesome to have like shoes that are like jetpacks. Sean from Cloverdale texted in 877-399-9898. He said, jetpack, eh? What are you going to mm-hmm. do when you run out of power? I gave it a lot of thought. About five seconds. I would have an unlimited amount of gunpowder close by. Um, yeah, so what are you going to do when your shoes run out of juice there, big fella? Uh, solar power. Think green, yeah. you know? Just put a little panel yeah. on the top of the shoe. Uh, and cold. just, uh, yeah. Me, oh, all right. Well, at least I live in Alberta, one of the sunniest places on the earth. So I'll, 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 I'll be okay here. Uh, but, uh, if I go anywhere else, uh, I, I will need to, you know, make note of that. We did get a bunch of text messages, movie specific. So we'll toss those out before we get to, are you okay here? Um, the ring camera from a view to a kill 1985. There's a couple of good ones there. False fingerprints. I've always thought those were kind of cool. Like if you were going to be a bad guy where you could take someone else's fingerprint and it was like that sticky, um, like that skin, that second skin that you would put on, like it's good for blisters. I forget what it's called, but it would be like someone else's fingerprint. So everything that you touched would be someone else's uh, fingerprint everywhere you go. That would be fun. You can get other people in trouble, but hey, we did it. We did agree. This could include nefarious uh, means, by the way. Um, let's toss out a fake third nipple. <laughs> Very underrated movie, man with the golden gun. Oh yeah, um, I forgot about that part. You might want to talk. You might want to explain the the third nipple part there, Maddie. Well, so Scaramanga, uh, played by Christopher Lee, who would later be a, like a wizard in some movie trilogy, um, among many many things. Great, amazing actor, Christopher Lee. Anyway, Scaramanga had a real third nipple, but James Bond, played by Roger Moore in this case, was posing as Scaramanga, and the only nobody nobody has seen him because he lives on this island with one one or two other crew members, which is impossible. You have to have a whole team to have a evil island lair. But I digress. <laughs> um, the only you know Bond. Roger Moore was going to meet a bunch of people who never saw Scaramanga. The only thing that they knew was that he had a third nipple. So they checked under Roger Moore Bond's shirt, and he had third nipple. Wow. But it was fake. It was rubber. He, like, once he got out and did the job, he, like, off of his chest and threw it in the bush. Tore off his nipple. Yeah. That's aggressive. Like that. 877-399-9898. Let's go to Winnipeg. And first, thank everybody who texted and called in to let us know that uh, the commercials didn't run uh, so perfectly there. Thank you for that. The Winnipeg folks fixed it up right away. Hi, Lori. Hey there. Hi. I've got a good idea. What about an invisibility cloak? Invisibility cloak. Where would you go? Anywhere. Anywhere. You're invisible. You could do anything. No, but what's the first place that you would want to go to where you could be the fly on the wall? Like, what what would you do? Uh, you know what? I don't know. Spy on people, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Go to places. I would like to go to, you know, really, really fancy places and go to, like, the super nice bathrooms and be able to see all the nice places that I can go couldn't go into. Like, I would go into houses. Well, not breaking into houses, but, like, houses for sale and show homes and <laughs> stuff like that. I realize as this is coming out of my face hole, that sounds really creepy. So <laughs> let's just rewind. But, you know, you know, that's not bad. Like, somewhere where, yeah, somewhere fancy like, would be good. I don't know. I think, like Buckingham I think Palace. Cool. Like, if you could go to, like, Sandringham. Or something like this unbelievable palace that you normally would never get into, but not in a creepy spy on the queen kind of way in some pervy thing. I just mean like just so you could walk around and see all of it. Like no, exactly. you just, can go to just, the, just, just to see it. Like, 
all the all the places that you're not allowed to go, right? That's the exactly the places where public's not usually allowed. Something like that. Exactly. Oh, it's beautiful, Lori in Winnipeg. Thanks so much for the call. You have a good morning. You too. Bye. What kind of gadget would you have if you could pick one spy gadget? What would it be? Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Uh, Derek says, I thought your spy gadget would be the moon dial, Matt. Oh, yeah, the the moon dial. Like, like that one? That's the one. Ooh. Let's get started. Like <laughs> Are you <stuff>. okay? <laughs> if you want to contribute to Are You Okay, you're absolutely welcome. 877-399-9898. Are you okay with geese? This is a recurring question on the show. Yeah, I thought we already talked about this, but, you know. We're not okay with geese. I thought yeah, we agreed. They are mean on purpose and that is why i do not like them yes uh yeah i mean i will never forget i never it was grade nine in ontario and i was living there my high school teacher science she's a great teacher she was out for a walk with another for the gym teacher and they were just going this is like a new neighborhood and they were just walking around one of the teachers is pregnant and they turn the corner and an entire flock of geese chased after them and attacked them. And my teacher was visibly shooketh. She was visibly like shaken that the class didn't start for 10 minutes until after she got back from the attack. So that left a quite a strong impression, I got to say. All right. Apparently, though, you're wrong. Some geese do love humans. I don't believe it. These must not be Canadian geese. They got to be from some other country, grouchy country geese. But as we're about to hear in Cincinnati, a man is caring for Lil Bob as a pet, courtesy of NBC Valley News. This is Lil Bob. Today, he's practically a celebrity walking around Alt Park, but nearly a year ago, he almost died. Bob was walking across Route 42 in Mason last spring with several other geese when Joe Songer stopped to let the geese cross the street. We were sitting there for less than 30 seconds, and a guy decides behind us that he wasn't going to wait. He went around us, and he killed his mother, father, and three siblings, and Bob was the only survivor. Songer brought the goose back home with him where his dog, Haint, immediately started caring for the goose. And when we took him home, I thought, you know, he's not going to last the night and, you know, he's here. Little Bob has traveled to Chicago, Cleveland, and Tennessee. Everywhere he goes, people stare and ask questions. Is it a pet? It's his brother. Little Bob loves to go for long walks. That exercise has made Songer more healthy. He's dropped 60 pounds. But make no mistake, little Bob and Haint also like to relax on the couch together. They watch TV together for like hours at a time sometimes. <laughs> He's so proud. He's very He loves excitable. that geese or that goose. He really does. 60 pounds. And can we, if your takeaway from that is that geese are nice, that's lovely. I think the real takeaway there is there is a dog named Haint. Yeah, that was a very unusual name. <laughs> a weird name for a dog, isn't it? I thought he said he had a dog named Hate at first, which is a really like even worse name for a dog. Mm. Uh, that's not only a bad name for a dog. It's the first time I've ever heard um, that as a name of anything. The etymology of Hate is uh, an alternative to haunt. It sounds like it's past tense. Like, <laughs> I hate you. I'm going to haunt you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Hainted I'm going to hate you. Yeah. Don't make me hate you. Yeah. So anyway, it's a, um, there's all kinds of different I feel like there's like, more, origins of hate. More questions than answers here, really. There are more <laughs> questions than answers. Does the goose think that he's a dog? Definitely. That's like when you Do see you put cats that are raised with dogs. No, no. If you look at the video, he just lets the goose fly around and they go for walks. But the goose always returns to dad and hate. So that that is a dog goose. That is a dog goose. It's a deuce. <laughs> Darn right. Um, geese are cobra chickens. <laughs> just yeah. Mean, mean little birds. Um. Another one comes from uh, Mike says, I'm not okay with angry cobra chickens. <laughs> we don't blame you. We really yeah, don't. There's, yeah, geese versus milk snakes. Which do you choose? Oh, man, that just is gross. We're not going there. Thanks, though, Mark. Um, 
Give him a goose and he lost weight. Give me a goose and I'll gain weight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> All right. Uh, little Bob is now potty trained. Uh, he rings a bell if he wants to go outside like a good dog would. The vet says he could live as long as 15 to 20 years. Uh, Songer says he wants to make sure that everyone knows Little Bob decides to fly away one day. That's fine. He is a wild animal. After all, he's not a wild animal. Uh, that's kind of neat, though, if he's, you know, cool and snuggly and stuff. I mean, 15, 20 years, it's a little too long in my book. Ooh, Thanksgiving would be like nerve. Like, talk about a nervous <laughs> bird, hey? Yeah. Thanksgiving rolls around. Uh, are you okay? Are you okay with candles? Yeah, Ooh. I like candles. I, I really like just, you know, kicking back uh you know in the in the tub just lighting candles you know just hanging out relaxing i love candles in the tub well not in the tub but yeah like around around the, the tub around the tub yeah. i'll yeah i'll frequently light a like a candle in the apartment just to just to keep the keep the home nice and vibey i guess i sound like a yeah, real exactly real no you don't i mean i have candles literally like on on my monitors here that's uh, I light in the studio all the time. I got a smelly one, incense and clove. I like that stuff. I think that's great. I think it gets you in the Me zone, too. man. It does get you. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I think I would recommend to more people. I mean, people who say like, oh, I can't unwind. You know what? Sit down, turn on some real vibey, mellow, super awesome, jazzy, funky stuff, whatever that is for you, and uh, turn on a candle, man. Go ahead. Fight it. Try and find it. Fight it. Well, if you don't know Goop, Goop is a wellness brand for Gleneth Paltrow. And Goop has been like, there's been some real mystical stuff going on at Goop, but they sell everything. And she has created one particular candle called Gleneth Paltrow's Vagina Candle. Um, yeah. This could be the headline for the uh, best headline all year. And here we are, less than three weeks in. You ready for it? I'm ready. Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina candle explodes in UK woman's home. Report. <laughs> oh, what? So, wow, hey? Yeah. Decent vagina candles, all in one show. Spy gadgets, domesticated <laughs> geese, dogs named Haint, and vagina candles. Okay. Anyway, according to the sun, this smells like my vagina candle that Paltrow smells through her goop wellness brand seems to have exploded into flames in the living room of UK woman who won the candle as part of a quiz. 50 year old Judy Thompson told the sun the candle exploded and emitted huge flames with bits flying everywhere. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, the whole thing was ablaze and it was too hot to touch. Oh dear God. Uh, there was, uh, inferno in the room. The media consultant from Kilburn, North London, added on, the candle is actually a real thing. In fact, Jimmy Kimmel lit the candle in front of Gwyneth Paltrow on live TV last year. But then I was like, wouldn't that be cool if somebody actually had the guts to do that? What a punk rock feminist statement to have that on your table. And then he made it. I thought it was, I thought he just made me one as a joke. But then the next thing I knew, it was on my website. So, so they didn't do any like testing or anything like that to try to... Because <laughs> it doesn't, it smells like, it smells nice. It smells kind of like, um, it smells a little bit masculine, really. Like it's, it has like kind of woody, like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Is now everything dirty? I, I, yeah. But it doesn't really, you know what I'm saying? I just, I know what you're saying. <laughs> I just don't even know anymore. Wow. According to the Goop, Goop store, the scent notes include geranium, citrusy bergamot, uh, cedar, and cedar absolutes juxtaposed with damask rose and ambrette seed. Wow. Mm. Some highbrow <laughs> stuff there. That's, Hello. I guess that's what a rich vajayjay smells like. Yeah, I guess so. Hello, nurse. Um, so there you go. If you're looking for that uh, super special Valentine's Day gift, I don't know how well that one goes over. Really? Um, here is, hey, baby, I love you. Here is a vagina candle. Yeah. Just for you. It smells like a whole other woman. 
<laughs> that'll go over well yeah it i don't know it just it would not go over well at all <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me because it seems way more easy to have a penis candle i mean that's probably there a stagette thing right like you there probably, is one you yeah. can buy one in canada there's really? a penis candle yeah there's a canadian made penis candle yeah this smells like my balls yeah yeah is not the, goop is the name of the candle. that's a quote right Mm-hmm. Yeah, this smells like my balls. Is the name of the is the can of the candle? Context. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 Con- yeah, yeah, yeah. Context, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan. Yeah. Phrasing. Context. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, thank you. I feel better now that this is this is what we've occupied your time with. <laughs> oh boy. Better than the news, am I right? Oh, oh my sure. goodness. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.